yeah, I really stepped out of my comfort zone on that one when I uh, pushed off in the North Atlantic and it was a sort of the ultimate way to deal with um, with losing uh, Richard to drowning was to be on that um, 3,100 mile trip across the pond. Episode 308, Mountaineering, Skiing, Rowing, Tragedy and Triumph with Laval St. Germain. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hi, friends. Welcome again to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thank you so much for giving us your time today to listen to amazing adventures. And boy, do we have some amazing ones for you today. Laval St. Germain is on the phone here, and Laval is Canadian. He is an ocean rower, a mountaineer, an airline pilot, a keynote speaker. He's done six of the seven summits. He's the only Canadian to summit Everest with no oxygen. He holds the world record for the fastest ever solo row of the North Atlantic from the North American continent to Europe. And he is here to talk to us today about what he calls stepping out and shoving off, what it takes to do these amazing adventures, especially in the face of extreme adversity. Laval, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Kurt. Thanks for having me on. I love your podcast. I'm looking forward to chatting. Well, thank you. We're really honored to have you here to share with us. And you've, before we hit record here, you shared a lot of stuff, and I'm just blown away. I'm excited to hear the rest. So we have to kind of rewind and, and tell the listeners what we were talking about a little bit. But let's get your backstory. So you said your family moved to Alberta from the eastern part of Canada. And so did you grow up there? Yeah, my ancestors on my dad's side came from uh, the French-speaking part of Canada, Quebec, and uh, they settled about 150 years ago in Western Canada in the province of Alberta, which is where I live. But I'm from a town in northern Alberta, just a very small farming community. M- my dad was, uh, I guess, uh, one of the townies. He lived in town, this small uh, rural community, French-Canadian community. My mom was uh, from a farm outside the uh, town that I grew up in, and she was from a German family. So um, I'm this eclectic mix, I guess, of uh, German and French-Canadian and um, grew up in this small town, spent all my summers, though, and all my um, Christmas holidays on my grandparents' farm. So I had an excellent free-range childhood with no structure and no supervision and uh, doing what farm kids do. And this was obviously before the days of cell phones and uh, the internet and that type of stuff. So I was really fortunate and really blessed to be able to grow up like that. And I think it had a lot to do with uh, setting me off on the um, sort of on the adventures that I've gone off to now because of the um, confidence I've gained as a free range child, I think, and always being in the outdoors. And then also with my my dad's love of the outdoors, my mom's love of fitness, and then my combined with my dad's love of reading and um um, that love of the outdoors, fitness and reading got me into National Geographic and books like Tarzan and Hemingway. And that set me off on my, uh, on my life course. Wow. That's really, really cool. Now this is a real long shot, but I have to ask, do you know the Symbolucks? No. <laughs> They're from the same part of the world, also farmers doing the same thing, growing up at the same point in history. One of my best friends, Leon Simbaluk, is from there, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if you guys just happened to cross paths? But, you know, Canada's a big place, so. Yeah, second largest country on earth, but we don't have that many people, so there is a good <laughs> chance for sure, yep. Well, I had to ask, it's a, what an amazing place to grow up, first of all. Um, Canada just represents so much in the world of adventure to me, but like you said, so much land area, it's not densely populated, so much wilderness, so much to explore and to experience. Uh, what an amazing place to start a life. Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, where I grew up was um, uh, flat prairie country, farming country, but I've lived in Calgary, uh, which is um, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. It's like, a, I'd call it like a miniature Denver, very similar in location, very similar in look. You've got this big city with the Rockies off in the distance and... Um, 
So since 1990, I've had the Canadian Rockies right in my backyard. So it's been fantastic for ice climbing and trail running and mountaineering, uh, backcountry skiing, that type of thing. So my guess is, is that, um, my activities are pretty similar to uh, a guy like you living in Colorado with uh, the Rockies playground right there. I think probably the only difference is that when I go out in the wintertime, my coat isn't quite as heavy as yours. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be true. I bet you that is true. Actually, it's funny. It's uh, we, had, uh, we speak in Celsius, as you know, so we had temperatures in the 30s, which would be in the 90s for in Fahrenheit for Americans. Wow. And um and today we're already looking at snow uh, coming. So that was just four days ago. We were in the 90s and we're already, already talking about snow here. So mm. things change very quickly when you're near the Rockies in this far north. Yeah, I saw in the weather today that that same system is actually giving us a chance for snow in the lower 48 here too. So good. It, it's glad it's you guys can share storm. that. <laughs> yeah, pretty wild. It's not going to make it down to Colorado though. I, I was hoping that maybe we would get some snow on the peaks. The uh, Aspen are turning yellow here right now. And I oh, love yeah, it when yeah. we have fresh white snow on the peaks with the blue sky and the yellow Aspen and the, the green pine trees. It just is, is really, really, it's like living in a postcard. So absolutely, it's wonderful when that happens. So, but Laval, why did you get into adventure? I mean, you kind of gave us the background that you were kind of born into it, but I know that not everyone who's born into it adopts it as a lifestyle like you have. Yeah, Kurt, I think it's because I think it has to do with my parents, the way they, no matter what I said I wanted to do, they just said, yeah, figure it out. You can do it. And you know, if I wanted to do something, they really counsel me not wanting to do something. So let's say as a child, you want to be a fireman or you want to be a pilot or you, you know, you want to be an astronaut. They would say, well, just figure out how to become who you want to be and don't think that you can't do it, which is quite something when you think that, uh, you know, a Canadian boy growing up in a small prairie town has parents that basically just open the door to the world by, by saying that. And then when my dad saw that as a child, I was always reading these books about uh, sort of high adventure and and travels in jungles and deserts and mountains and, and the Canadian Arctic, he said, and the, especially National Geographic, he said, I can see you really want to go to all these places. Why don't you become an airline pilot? That way you'll be able to, to get uh, travel benefits and airlines all over the world and see these places. So I just said, yeah, okay. And at age 15, he drove me to the airport. We always had a small airplane, so I was always exposed to flying. But he drove me to the airport. He set me up in my what we call ground school, and I started my training. So at age 16, I had my student pilot's license. At age 17, my private pilot's license. At age 18, my commercial license. I went and did the sort of really stereotypical Canadian bush flying. And that means that I was flying uh, an aircraft on floats. So uh, with the radial engine, the round engine, uh, all over northern Canada, uh, hauling trappers and hunters and fishermen around and building my time and at the same time living a life of pretty high adventure up mm, there. It was, uh, yeah. it was, re it was really um, something else to do that. And that instilled a lot of confidence in me when you're 19, 20 years old and you're living in the middle of, uh, of the boreal forest in northern Canada on your own, maintaining an airplane basically on your own and and doing all the uh, all the flying, picking where you're going to land, hauling heavy loads, dealing with customers, that type of thing. And I think that uh, so th that combination of growing up with the with the stories of uh, of great adventurers, having parents that said I could do that, and then getting my pilot's license uh, resulted in me being able to travel all over the world. And I, I remember at age 22 or 21, I can't remember now, a buddy and I flew down to Honduras with our airline passes, did some scuba diving. I fell in love with Latin America. Next thing you know, a few months later, I was in Bolivia climbing the highest mountain in Bolivia, which was 21,500 feet. Mm. And that's what that's what hooked me on, um, on climbing at altitude right there that trip, even though it almost killed me. I had cerebral edema. Oh. I was staggering around. I went snow blind. Uh, we were in the Atacama Desert trying to hitchhike back to uh, La Paz. But looking back on that, and even shortly after that trip, I wouldn't tra trade it for the world. It really set me off on, a, on a, a life of adventure. So I know that you've done six of the seven summits, but you've probably done a whole lot of other mountains besides just the, the tall seven, we could say. Um, yeah. What's your yeah, story absolutely. there? 
so I did uh, Bolivia, Cerro Sahama, which is the highest mountain in Bolivia. It's high, 21.5. Uh, the highest peak in North America, as you know, is Denali, and that's about uh, 20,300 feet, if I recall. I've done that one as well. But once I did uh, Bolivia, I thought, you know what? I love Latin America. Because I speak uh, French, I can get uh, by fairly easily in Spanish. It's easy to learn. So I decided to go to Argentina, climb the highest mountain in South America. These are all by myself. There's no guides. There's no um, organized trips. I did the Polish Glacier Direct Route, which is not the normal route on uh, Aconcagua. And then when I summited Aconcagua, which is about 22,000, 23,000 feet, I thought, you know what? Maybe I've got a bit of a propensity for altitude. And I just uh, started focusing on climbing bigger peaks. So I went to Orizaba, the third highest mountain in North America, which is in Mexico. And Mexico's highest peak did that. Ended up on Kilimanjaro via the Umbue route, a route that's not climbed very often. And then uh, ended up climbing the upper west rib of uh, Denali. Went by myself, but hooked up with a Scottish climber I met at the Anchorage airport. Eventually, uh, we, um, we skied to base camp together, and then I did the rest of the climb on my own. But... I really love uh, the high mountains of the world. and mm. uh, But interspersed with that was obviously climbing here in Canada, backcountry skiing trips. This all started with actually backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering in the Cascades. So I remember um, in my uh, very early 20s, uh, climbing Saint Mount St. Helens and skiing down at uh, Mount Baker, Mount Shasta, and uh, really fell in love with ski mountaineering. And then eventually I, um, you know, we started having kids. That didn't slow us down very much, though. We uh, we took them all over the world with our with the benefits of airline travel, everywhere from Namibia and Southwest Africa to the jungles of the frontier rainforests of South America and Guyana, uh, to Europe, to Asia, and um, and then eventually I uh, decided I wanted to climb Everest and I wanted to do without oxygen. Um, so on, on, and the Everest story is quite interesting. Uh, one, one of the reasons I'm able to do all this stuff is that I've married the right, uh, the right girl. <laughs> so the, uh, you can imagine that, uh, we as, as husbands, um, sometimes have to ask permission to do certain things, whether you're, uh, not that I've ever golfed, but if you were a golfer to go golfing with the boys or go away on a weekend. And for me, it's pouring my wife a couple of glasses of red wine and saying that, hey, babe, I'm going to go to Everest in um, March and uh, climb it via Tibet without oxygen. And she didn't even pause. She took a sip of her red wine and said, it's about time you're not getting any younger. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, so you, can, you must have married the right wife to have that sort of an opinion about it. So she must oh, love adventure as well. She, she does, but she, she doesn't partake in this type of stuff. I mean, she, she's not sticking her neck out like that. And, um, but she, she knows all about it. She's been exposed to it since the day we met. And, um, she's got a lot of confidence in me, which is fantastic. So I've, I, I won the lottery in that department. That's for sure. Mm. Well, you said six of the seven and you've listed about five. So what are we missing here? Sure. Okay. I've got, uh, Aconcagua, Kilimanjaro, Denali, Elbrus in uh, Russia, uh, Karsten's Pyramid, the highest peak in Australasia, which is uh, in Indonesia in the province of Papua, and um, Everest. So the last one I have is Vincent in Antarctica. I was wondering. Yeah, Antarctica is the only one that that's still on the list. And you have plans to do that? Yeah, and the only reason I haven't done it yet is um, I'm just trying to figure out how to do a, what I would think would be a proper trip to Antarctica. I don't want to just fly into the base of a mountain sort of nip up it, ski down and fly back home again. Uh, it just doesn't really appeal to me. I'd like to combine it with something else. So I'd like to do something in Antarctica that would um, um, add something to the trip. So I'm debating a polar trip as in a South Pole trip as well, combining the two and um, working on that. There's a desert I'd like to cross in the Arabian Peninsula, the largest sand desert in the world called the Rub al-Khali, the empty quarter. But uh, Saudi Arabia does not give out tourist visas at this time. Um, there's a whole bunch of projects. But yeah, um, Antarctica is definitely there. And that's the next one out of the, um, out of the seven summits. But it interspersed with a bunch of other strange stuff that I've done. So, for example, between some of these peaks, of, I've flown to Iran and climbed the highest mountain in Iran and skied down it by myself again. Nobody wants to go with me on these trips, believe it or not. <laughs> it sounds to me like you kind of <laughs> like doing these things solo. Oh, yeah, I do, actually. Yeah, I, I really do. And then um, 
2013, I flew to northern Iraq, traveled to the border with Iran, and uh, climbed the highest mountain in Iraq, uh, ski mountaineering with telemark skis. And um, it's an area that you're not allowed to go into. And that's primarily because Iran and Iraq are obviously uh, two enemies. They fought in the 80s and 90s in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, this region is absolutely covered in landmines. Mm. And um, in 2009, three Americans were uh, kidnapped, kidnapped in this region, hiking in just a few hundred kilometers south of where I was by uh, by Iran. And um, and I think the the longest they were held, the uh, two of the the males were were two years, if I remember right, with um, millions of dollars in ransom paid to the um, Iranians. So I was well aware that this was a sketchy area, but somehow I um, myself and my fixer talked our way through the uh, the Iraqi uh, security checkpoints until we got to the nearest one near the Iranian border. And um, when the soldiers asked what we were doing, he told them that I told him to say that I was just here sightseeing for the day. Well, I was I was there for over a week of ski mountaineering. That's what my plan was. And I had a backpack in the back of the car with uh, bristling with climbing equipment, including skis and an ice axe and crampons <laughs> and that's in my pack. And the guy didn't seem to catch on so i thought fair game and he my fixer dropped me off on this deserted road and i said pick me up here in seven days and i um picked my way through many landmine fields uh, going rock to rock at times uh, so i wouldn't step on any uh soil that could have landmines underneath it and eventually summited chikadar the highest mountain in iraq and then telemark skied down um and most interestingly, on the descent, after making my way through all these uh, minefields again, I um, came upon some boot tracks that hadn't been there previously. And I was uh, later to find out there was Iraqi security forces that were looking for me. And they actually caught me when I went through a checkpoint on the way back. Oh, wow. And I was interrogated for about four hours. And um, eventually they let me go. But it was it certainly uh, added a bit of spice to the trip for sure. So, oh, goodness. You know, it, you, you've done so many crazy things, and maybe they're not so crazy. You know, let's call them adventurous and impressive and, and, and whatever words you want to add to the list here. But I guess the question is, why? You know, you, you were born yeah. into it, you adopted the lifestyle, but a lot of people say, man, going through a field full of landmines to try to get to a peak, and, you know, I could go somewhere without the landmines. You know what I mean? Yeah, and 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 um, of course I've done that. I mean, this is a, adds a whole new bit of uh, of objective hazard to backcountry skiing for sure. But you know, there's something Kurt about about um, pushing back about against propaganda and myths. For example, what I mean by that is that you and I, as North Americans, and more so for you as an American, I've grown up with uh, Iran being this evil place with these uh, people who are generally evil, and yet places I've been in the world, some of the the friendliest, most hospitable, kind people I've ever met were in Iran. Um, and that does not fit the stereotype that we're, that we're sort of served up in the Western media, in Western Europe and North America, and especially down in the US. And I was just absolutely blown away by that. And I love that I pushed back against that. To be sitting on a on a peak in Iran or Iraq and looking across these these fantastic glacial landscapes with herds of ibex grazing around and untouched snow to ski down and and these spectacular peaks that are just as spectacular as anything i've seen in north america or in europe is really something else and it doesn't fit our impression or our preconceived notions of what these countries are supposed to be like and then meeting a, a kurdish tribesman in the mountains of iraq who is sharing his food with you and you're sharing a tea squatting in the snow together and, and speaking in sign language just something I'll never forget. And these mm. moments that you get, these memories far outweigh the tiptoeing through a landmine or the discomfort in a snowstorm or the danger of climbing by yourself or, or that type of stuff. I always, I always remember the best parts of a trip, even though I've gone through some, you know, some pretty horrible times and horrifying times in some of my expeditions. So that's one of the reasons I love that. I love going to these places on the map where people say you can't do it, you shouldn't be there. And yet when you do it, you come back and go, wow, it wasn't that, it was better than not that bad. It was fantastic. Yeah. I, beautiful answer. But, but having said that, um, my wheelhouse is the mountains. 
my are, are the mountains. My wheelhouse is running down a mountain path, climbing, skiing, that type of stuff. And one area where I really um, confronted sort of fears and and challenge was 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 shoving off into the North Atlantic. Right. And that's where that second part of my tagline comes from: the step out, meaning step out of your tent, either on the high camp on Everest or on a snowstorm at minus 40 and on Denali or shoving off from a dock into the North Atlantic to row across it. Now that was really pushing my limits. Like, like I've never been pushed when it came psychologically, not physically, but psychologically. So, but I still hearken back to that. And I use the lessons I've learned from things like that every day in my life. Fall is the best time to start thinking snow, and Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help you get prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. Brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Never Summer, Jones, and BCA. And you need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags, and they are ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. You can also rent skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes at Bentgate. What's more, they host free demo ski days at local resorts so you can try out the latest gear. Stop by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to check out your new gear as well as to get updates on all of their events. You know, Laval, you shared with me before we hit record here about your son, Richard, and I think that talking about the North Atlantic without explaining to our listeners the the story about Richard would be a disservice. So would you be so kind? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So our son, uh, Richard, at age 21, which is three years ago now, it was three years ago, July 15th, got a job as as a young pilot following in my footsteps, starting as a bush pilot, like I was telling you, flying in the north and he got a job 21 days previously in a place in the Canadian Arctic called uh, Norman Wells. And um, as you know, in the Arctic, it's 24-hour daylight. So one night at about 9.15 at night, he um, asked a young lady that was working at a, a student who was working at, at a hotel there as a waitress for the summer from Ontario that he was sort of courting and dating to go for a canoe trip. They got in a canoe on the... Um, Mackenzie River, which is the second largest river in North America after the Mississippi. And 20 meters from shore uh, on a beautiful summer night, the canoe flipped. Um, They both hung on to the boat for a while. Um, The young lady panicked and started to swim for the shore. She started to drown and Richard yelled at her to lay in her back and swim on her back and just to calm down. And she followed his instructions. Some locals who uh, had heard the yelling, Richard yelling for help, got into a boat and quickly sped out there. They saved uh, the young lady. Richard was still with the canoe when they picked her out of the water. And when they turned their boat to get Richard, he was now about 500 meters from shore. They got to the canoe and, and uh, he was gone. He had um, had obviously succumbed to the cold water and fatigue and, and we lost him. So mm. at uh, 2.30 in the morning, um, I get that dreaded call from the RCMP, which is... Uh, our national police force, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they broke the news to me that we'd uh, that we've uh, lost our son. It was that um, that the, the, all the horror that you can imagine as a parent, and um, it uh, it's rocked our world and it's caused us to live with a lot of sadness. And um, however, with a I think a renewed impetus to really live life to the fullest, because if you can at age twenty one. On a beautiful summer night, 20 meters from shore, flip the canoe and disappear. And um, it is uh, it's just a reminder of how short and precious life is. And we are always uh, confronted with that sadness, but we still uh, refuse to, to live our lives without happiness. So we still have happy days, obviously, and we still enjoy life. We have two other children, but it certainly um, drives home that, number one, life is short. Number two, the outdoors does have a bite to it. 
Wow. You know, so hmm. many people, had they gone through an experience like that, I think that they would have been tempted to hang it up, just say, you know what, That's I don't need to put myself out there anymore. But it seems to me that you've done the opposite. Yeah, we uh, we started to live very intentionally with respect to uh, to grief, and um, I think we always have lived intentionally. But w- with respect to grief, we really made a concerted effort to come out of this healthy. Meaning, we went to uh, counseling, we spoke to other parents who had lost children, um, and uh, and we refused to not talk about it. So, with our two remaining children, amongst uh, myself, Janet, and I, my wife. Um, and then I've done, I've confronted in different ways. I think I have a bit of a propensity for solitude and going out and suffering in the outdoors on my own. And one thing I did after Richard died that winter is I, uh, got on my fat bike in the winter in the Arctic and I, and I attempted to ride from the Yukon to the Arctic ocean in winter. And I was riding a very famous Arctic highway, a gravel highway up here in Canada. It's called the Dempster Highway. And it's very remote. It takes you above tree line in the Arctic. And um, it's not ridden very often. And I did it in winter. Um, and I wanted to do it because when when Richard was 13 and Andrea was 11, we rode it in the summertime on our bikes. They were the youngest people still who've ever ridden that highway because it's so challenging and so remote. And I wanted to go back there and, and relive being on that special trip with them because Richard had always hearkened back to that as a, as a, as a young man, that those are very challenging days for him as a 13 year old to bike that road. And he always used it as a way to convince himself to try a little harder or push a little further. And on that trip, I mean, I had a lot of, um, reminders and, of you know, I'd, I passed campsites that we camped at when the kids were 11 and 13 and they were now snowed in and, and frozen. And it, it was absolutely bittersweet, but it helped me, I think, in a way. It was cathartic in a way to, to be up there. It was so cold, though. We, we, I had temperatures of minus 46 degrees on that bike ride and I ended up freezing uh, my right foot. So I had frostbite on um, uh, my big toe and my right foot and uh, I spent – eight weeks, uh, two days a week at the Calgary burn clinic here, oh. getting this frozen toe worked on. I didn't lose it, but, um, I, um, I had to abandon the trip because of that. I went back the next year and finished it in the winter time. I, I rode it the opposite direction, the whole thing and, uh, didn't freeze anything, but it really helped me to be out there. And then, um, uh, after that trip, after I rode from the Arctic Ocean to the Yukon in winter, I um, decided that one thing I always wanted to do is row across an ocean. And I have no seafaring, seagoing, maritime experience whatsoever. And this was, I think, another way for me to deal with, um, partially to deal with Richard's loss, is by going out on the water, something that I didn't know anything about. So I set off to learn everything I could about about the ocean, about ocean rowing. I took my day skipper training. I took my yacht master ocean theory training. I took my, my, um, uh, like sea rescue training, my marine radio operators license. I, I read dozens of books on, um, on storm tactics at sea. And, uh, there, there's no guidebook and there's no real literature on how to row an ocean. So I basically made a checklist and what I had to do. And about a year later, I, I had a boat built in England, took the family out there to see it. So they were comfortable in the fact that this wasn't an open dory that you, that you'd imagine. And, um, yeah, I really stepped out of my comfort zone on that one when I, uh, pushed off in the North Atlantic and it was a sort of the ultimate way to deal with, um, with losing, uh, Richard to drowning was to be on that, um, 3,100 mile trip across the pond. Hmm. Wow, lots of time in some very cold water to remember and to consider and to think and to fight your own battles. Yeah, there was a lot of dark moments out there and um, a lot of big storms. Um, you know, a lot of nights where you're um, in the cockpit of that boat and all you can do is hear the the roar of the waves coming and you've got waves, 40 knot winds and um, four day long storms where you're tossing and turning in a, an area about twice the size of a dishwasher and felt like a dishwasher at times in there, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, I, I had a lot of inner dialogue with Richard out there and a lot of inner dialogue with myself and sometimes questioning what the heck I was doing out there. But it's pretty amazing how, um, you know, at some of the darkest moments out there, how quickly you pass through those, uh, 
and I think we have that in life too. You've got these storms in life and these these dark waves that wash over you, but you know what? It always ends and the sun does come up again. You're suddenly on a mirrored-like ocean with dolphins swimming beside you and it's, um, I think that that's what life's all about is overcoming these hardships and uh, continuing to move forward. You know, you say that, and I agree 100%, but it's real easy to just lightly say, yeah, there were some tough times out there rowing, and it kind of represents what life's about. Let's dive into how tough tough is. I mean, it can't be easy to be in those storms alone in the North Atlantic. Did you ever think that you, you just weren't going to make it? Um. Yes, I did have storms where um, I was afraid that the boat was going to come apart. Um, obviously, you want to make sure that when you're in uh, large waves in the middle of the North Atlantic that you are traveling down the wave straight ahead. You don't have the wave hit your broadside. And at night, it's incredibly difficult to um, to track straight down a wave. And a couple of times I was um, knocked down, as you would say, in sailing where the boat goes right over onto its side sometimes slightly past 90 degrees so I was just about rolled upside down and it would come back up again and uh, I think what really helps me uh, Kurt is my training as an airline pilot I'm very methodical I follow procedures I had uh, I I'd made uh, my own abandoned ship checklist I was I'd be reviewing it I had a lot of redundant systems in the air uh, sorry I almost called it an airplane in the boat much like you would on, a, on an airplane and I think my training as um, as an airline pilot really helps. I don't panic in, uh, in hairy situations at all. I just fall back on my uh, on my training. You know, there's that one saying that I always always like to repeat to people is that it's from a Greek philosopher named Archilochus. Is that we don't rise to the level of our expectations. And I add in their hopes and prayers and dreams. We don't rise to the level of those. We always fall back to the level of our training. So when the shit hits the fan, so to speak, you fall back on your training. And if you stick to that, if you stick to procedures, that you can uh, generally dig your way out of um, of some pretty hairy situations. Having said that, when you've gone three or four days with just a couple hours of sleep and you're getting tossed and turned and beat up, um, it's difficult. Yeah, it's it, you, you get to you get near the end of your limits and uh, not physical limits so much as psychological limits, but um, there's something that much more sweet when you see the clouds start to clear and the waves start to fall and next thing you know you're in the sun and you've got your shirt off and you're rowing and it's calm again and you forget all about it and I, and you know like they say they said if people didn't forget pain a woman would only have one baby because right. it's so painful and we forget pain and next thing you know you're ready for more so yeah yeah it's true i think people would only climb one mountain as well that's right yeah oh yeah absolutely the, at the summit of my first peak, my first 14er, I was 18 years old and I climbed it from essentially from Oklahoma. So I, I yep. had no, you know, no acclimatization to the, to the altitude. But I remember I got to the top and I said, well, I never have to do this again. <laughs> and you know, now yeah, but I bet you when you got back down, you were itching to do it again though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Within a day, it's like, oh, that was crazy. Let's go. And you know, scores and scores and scores of peaks later, uh, I, I love it. And you even get to the point, I think, Laval, where you look forward to the difficulty and embrace it kind of as a friend, as a, as a part of what it takes to have the experience. Have you found that in your own life? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I've mentioned this before to people in other interviews, but, uh, you know, we always talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but I really think there's post-traumatic growth that occurs when you go through tough situations, whether it's the ultimate situation of losing a child, there's nothing more tragic than that, or a spouse, um, close family, or, you know, climbing a Himalayan giant without oxygen. I, um, I really think that there's some kind of growth that occurs with that. Um, and I guess we need to remember that, that, uh, that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to hurt. It's okay to struggle. And that the pain that you're experiencing when you're climbing a 14,000 or as an 18-year-old and you're from the flatlands of Oklahoma, it's not informative pain, meaning it's not telling you that you've blown a tendon in your leg or that you're right. having a stroke or you're having a heart attack. It's the pain that comes with pushing yourself and it's going to fade, but it's going to make you stronger as well. And um, I think that uh, that PTG, that post-traumatic growth is something that we all need. And I really think that uh, we, we're in a time now where people don't like discomfort. And uh, 
I think it's really important to be uncomfortable. I think we're designed for that, and I think it makes us better. Yeah, yeah, I agree completely. I want to dive into that concept a little bit. I mean, you're a keynote speaker, and I know that what you've learned from all of your adventures really lends great content and insights that you can share with others through your speaking, and that's why I would like to dive into that a little bit. You know, there's a a progression of adventure. No one starts their first adventure by climbing Everest. That's not the way it works. And no one, no one's first adventure is rowing across the North Atlantic either. You know, we we start out with smaller adventures when we're young, and there's a progression of knowledge and skill and experience, and also there's a progression of wanting to do something bigger, and and perhaps it's because we want to continue to feel that challenge. Mm-hmm. But it changes us. It's it's a it's kind of a dance. And it changes who we are on the inside. And I can hear that coming out in what you're saying. You're not the same guy that you were before you started doing all this stuff. So can you tell us how it's changed you and what the benefits have been for, uh, you know, chasing this life of ad- adventure? Well, I think it uh, it really inoculates you against um, getting too wound up in the small challenges that occur day-to-day in life. I mean, when you have to deal with... Uh, um, a water maker in the middle of the North Atlantic that's uh, quit, and if you don't get water, you're not going to make it. You have to fix that thing. It makes things like um, leaving the lights on in the car and coming out to a dead battery seem pretty benign. Right. Um, it makes things like uh, when I climbed Everest about three hours out of high camp, I froze my right hand, and I ended up um, losing three fingers. I had them amputated when I got back to Canada um, from frostbite, and yet. One of the guys on our team the next day died at the summit. Mm. So it keeps things in perspective that, uh, you know, I'm looking at my hand as I'm speaking to you, I'm missing three fingers on my right hand. And it's to me, it's just not a big deal because of the fact that I had a 27-year-old teammate die on the summit of Everest and he paid a price and he's still up there. And, um, you know, it's it, it, it gives you a perspective on what's really important and what's critical. And you also don't whinge and moan about stuff if stuff goes wrong. And what I mean by that is that you have to accept your responsibility for things that that go wrong in your life. I I didn't freeze my hand on Everest because it was cold. I froze my hand on Everest because I had a Jumar, which is a climbing device. I'm sure you know what it is. It slides up the rope and locks so it doesn't go back down on the fixed lines. And my Jumar was not designed for these heavy-duty Himalayan-sized mitts. So, of course, mm. when I jam this big mitt in there, it compressed the down around my fingers on my right hand, which I'm right-handed, and that's what I was hanging on the Jumar with, and it froze. froze my fingers. And I, I made a mistake. I paid for that. So one really important thing, and this is also from my aviation training, that 98% or 99% of aviation accidents are caused by human error. And that's the same for day-to-day life is that when something goes wrong, the vast majority of the time, it's because of us making a mistake. So obviously, if you if you drive through a green light and somebody runs a red and hits you, that's completely different. But I'm talking about if, if I was late for this podcast, for example, because I decided to do two extra sets at the gym before we did this, that's my fault. It's not because I got caught in traffic on the way home. It's not because you can't blame external factors for stuff that you've done. And I, and I, and I, and I don't blame it being cold on Everest for losing my hand. I blame it. That was my fault. Um, I froze my foot on the, on the, uh, Arctic bike ride because even though I had these ridiculously triple layered boots, they weren't designed precisely for that because my SPD pedals, the metal, uh, everybody knows what SPD, PD pedals are the clip them into your pedal. Well, that cold metal was sucking the heat out of the bottom of my boot, bottom of my foot. The next year, I, I didn't use those type of pedals. I used flat platform pedals. So these are little things that that occur. So what I think this this life does is it teaches you responsibility for making mistakes, and that um, and that you learn from that and you move on and you don't sit there and whinge and moan about it. Hmm. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. 
Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. That's that's really insightful, and it kind of it, it goes in the face of the way that a lot of people live their lives today. Let me say it that way, but it's in perfect alignment with how our ancestors had to live their lives just to survive. Oh, and, for sure. You know, there's something about the softness of our modern world. You don't have to push yourself. You don't have to learn from these hardships. Um, but when people do then they gain the you know the the extra something that the self awareness or or just the knowledge on how to manage difficult situations which eventually we all have to face in life but one theme that you've touched on a couple three times now is preparedness mm-hmm. and you mentioned you know as a pilot how you have your your checklist and you have your redundancies and that you're trained in that way i think that really most adventurers that get themselves into trouble it's because they haven't done that yet they haven't checked all those boxes so unpack that for us a little bit yeah i totally agree so let's say you and i let's say i'm down in denver and i meet you down in colorado we go for a two-hour trail run and we it's a beautiful day it's 30 degrees sorry uh 85 or 90 fahrenheit whatever that is in fahrenheit and we have our shorts on we've got our water um, we may have headlamps and we go for a run, no big deal. So we get an hour away from the car, we're turning back and you sprain your ankle. Well, you know, as well as I do that 11 or 12,000 feet in the Rockies that when the sun goes down, you can quickly go from sweating like a meatball to having hypothermia and, uh, from something as benign as a, as a broken or a sprained ankle. So what I'm saying is that even when I go for a one or a two hour trail run in the mountains, I bring a little first aid kit, I bring an emergency blanket, I bring a headlamp, I bring a toque, which is what we call, what you guys call a knitted ski cap. I bring um, probably some leggings to pull up over my legs if it's cold. Um, uh, And obviously something to start a fire with. That means that I can spend a night out in the open uh, from something as, as benign as a sprained ankle, which would kill us otherwise. So you have to really be prepared and you have to be prepared in, in, in at these most benign times, like a trail run that you've done a hundred times before. All it takes is to roll your ankle or sort of go off the edge of the trail and hit your head. And now you're in a life and death scenario. And I extend that through to these, these actual life and death scenarios when I'm, when I'm uh, either in the Himalayas or in the middle of the North Atlantic. I'm extremely careful about what I'm doing, but I, it doesn't mean I'm not out there having fun pushing the limits, skiing some big lines, skiing some steep stuff, for example, or climbing some steep stuff. But at the same time, I'm ready if something goes wrong. And I try and control all the hazards that I can. There's some obviously you can't, objective hazards like like avalanches and that type of thing. But I'm trying to minimize uh, that risk. And furthermore, I think that we tend to design our own luck at times, especially in the outdoors. And there's another quote, and this is from a Roman philosopher, which I've always lived by, is that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And um, if you are prepared and the situation is right, you can take advantage of that. Now, of course, conversely and, and tragically, sometimes like with my son Richard, bad luck can befall you as well. But I have to add this to, to, to Richard's bad luck is that he didn't have a life jacket on that day. So that's a perfect example of, of not being prepared. Now, a 21-year-old boy taking a girl for a canoe ride in Canada is a pretty normal thing without a life jacket. I would have done the exact same thing. But what I'm saying is that a life jacket, that tiny little effort of putting on a life jacket would have uh, saved his life. Uh, from, and it would have turned into a good story, some wet clothes, um, and maybe a scolding from me. But with backed up by a pat on the back for wearing his life jacket. So, I mean, this is a bit of a going off on a bit of a tangent, but since then we've, 
established a river rescue fund in this community. And now we have life jacket trees along the river with free life jackets that people grab anytime they go in a boat. And it's called the Richard St. Germain River Rescue Fund just mm. to prevent that. So, yeah, that's, yeah, so beautiful. That, that, that's, that's an example of, uh, of, um, of, the, of that type of thing where, you know, preparation, preparation, preparation. Of course, there's going to be things you cannot prepare for, but it makes such a big difference. Laval, we have a, just a, a whole plethora of listeners, but a lot of our listeners are younger to adventure. And that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're young, but they're, they're just starting to try to challenge themselves and, and find out what they're made of a little bit. And I want to share something that is, it's a parallel to this. When I was in my 20s, we were in the Indian Peaks area in Colorado, and we mm-hmm. were there to camp. And a buddy of mine that was from out of state, he had no mountain experience, he uh, looked up at Navajo Peak, which is uh, a somewhat formidable little 13er. He said, let's go climb that. Well, it was evening, or I, I should say mid-afternoon. And, and I looked up at the peak, I looked at the sky, I looked at him, and I, I made a huge mistake. But I looked at him and I said, okay, I'd love to do that. However, it's going to get dark. It looks like we're going to get some snow we don't really have the right gear. Are you sure you want to go risk something like that? And he says, yeah, let's go. And we went. We knew we weren't prepared. But we thought adventure will be fun. We got out of there alive by the, you know, by the, the skin of our teeth. Um, we stumbled back into camp with a quarter inch of ice over our entire bodies, frozen to our clothes. We had to melt our boots to pull them off. Uh, he got hypothermia and at one point um, almost sat down to die. And I had to rough him up to keep him walking. Uh, There was another point at which we lost all visibility, and we had to go down these monster thousand-foot embankments with cliffs with no visibility in the ice. It is the dumbest thing I've I've probably ever done in my life. But the reason I want to tell that story, one, is so other people don't do it. You know, we were very blessed to get out of there with uh, no real harm. But I want to let people know it's not just about preparedness. It's about recognizing when you're not prepared to say no. <laughs> you know what I mean? To stop and, and, and say, the adventure's not worth it today. I want to do an adventure in a way that means that I can come back and enjoy it again another day. And yeah, so, I to- to- totally agree. I mean, uh, mountain weather is, um, is absolutely a killer. And um, people have to really respect that. And if you don't have the experience in the mountains and you don't have experience with weather, that's what can get you. And, and you know, that, that story you tell about your buddy wanting to sit down in the snow and die, that happened to me on, on, on the descent from Everest. And um, you, it was 17 and a half hours from high camp back to high camp. So round trip. I left it at about 11 o'clock at night in the dark with my headlamp and it was snowing. So I had about... Uh, five to 10 centimeters of fresh snow on the ground, which made the going a little harder. I was climbing with two other guys, a Briton and Aussie that were climbing with oxygen, but I soon pulled ahead of them and I was on my own for the entire day, night and morning, I guess I should say. I summited about 10 o'clock in the morning. And um, climbing Everest without oxygen is, um, it's, it's tough right now to relive uh, how difficult physically it was. But I, I got to the top and at that time, uh, my climbing partner, Mark, caught up with me, the, the Brit climbing with oxygen. And uh, we got to the summit and I said, 20 minutes, we've got to, we've got to get the hell out of here. Because I could feel that I was, you know, I was, you know, you're, you're dying. And um, 20 minutes. So at exactly 20 minutes, I looked at my watch. I said, let's go. We started down. We got separated again on the descent. And I got to a point where I was so exhausted that I had to take a nap. But I had been warned and read that if you nap without oxygen on Everest, just below the summit somewhere, you're never going to wake up again. But I yeah. had built this story that this was going to be okay because at least I'd get a good nap. And it's it sounds ridiculous now when you're talking about it uh, down here at and uh, back home in the comfort of your home. But I, that made total sense to me. I knew I was never going to see Janet and the kids again. I knew I was never going to wake up, but at least I'd get a good sleep. So uh, as I was descending, I saw a tent off in the distance destroyed by the wind and um, it didn't make sense, but I was obviously uh, hypoxic probably and suffering from a little bit of, well, obviously a lot of high altitude effects and because there are no tents that high in Everest. And as I approached the tent, I was going to crawl underneath sort of the tattered nylon remnants of this tent. And as I approached, I saw that it was a climber sleeping in the snow 
And it was the last Canadian that tried to climb Everest without oxygen one year previous to that, almost to the day. Mm. And he was, he was napping, um, and he'd been napping there dead for a year. And let me tell you, that made me uh, wake up um, pretty quickly and continue down. So I know exactly what that level of fatigue is like for your friend to to want to just uh, sit down and um, and uh, and literally fall asleep and die. But sort of a, a, as an added um, bright side to this story, I did one of my public speaking gigs about Ever shortly after I got back from that expedition. And a guy came up to me after the talk to shake my hand and talk to me, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, I want you to know that this guy's name was Frank Zebart, the guy who died up there, Canadian. He said, I had dinner with Frank, the, uh, Frank and his wife the night before he left for Kathmandu. And it'll be good for me to tell his wife that Frank's body up there, meaning Frank's death, stopped you from lying down and dying, and it may have saved another Canadian. So wow. there was a bit of a silver, silver lining in that story. But yes, for the uninitiated, the mountains can turn on you pretty quickly. And even the hardest of us can... Uh, can get to a situation where you're ready to to pack it all in. Hmm. Well, it's easy to go too far and be surprised by just the circumstances. I mean, it, 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 hypothermia does that. It causes us to lose judgment. It causes us to lose reason. And uh, not to mention all the high altitude effects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you shared the story. I, we have so many people that come on the show who say, well, I did this and it was awesome. And man, it, it made my life so much more rich. And I have these great memories. And, and I, I, I love those stories. Don't get me wrong. But thank you for sharing that on your way down from Everest, you were about ready to lay down and die. People need to know oh. this is not, this is not kid stuff, you know? Oh yeah. It's, um, when you're up there, uh, sort of tickling the edge of, uh, of the envelope, so to speak, it's, um, Sometimes you go over the other side and it, it does not take much, especially when you're um, at those altitudes or at those temperatures, if it's up in the Arctic or if you're out in the middle of the North Atlantic. So uh, preparation is extremely important to take advantage of uh, luck in quotation marks, but sometimes life conspires against you and you get the chop. So, Oh, yeah. Well, it's obvious that you also have a very goal-oriented life, and I think that that can be a, a fabulous way to live. Talk to us about goals a little bit, and how can people achieve their goals? Well, that's a that's a big question. You know, I, I don't I don't see myself as somebody who can motivate somebody to. Uh, I don't consider myself a motivational speaker, although I think in if you sort of you know did a Google search of me, that may be what comes up. But I'm more trying to to share with people via my experiences that. Um, People can accomplish these things, and and it doesn't have to be Everest, obviously, without oxygen. It doesn't have to be a mountain. It doesn't have to be rowing an ocean alone or tiptoeing through landmines. But I I think that when you do these types of things, that you have a certain propensity for achieving goals, and that comes with a certain level of confidence. And I think that we all have these abilities. And And I alluded to it earlier when I talked about my parents, is that if you want to have a podcast, for example, like you do a fantastic podcast, that's not enough. If you sat down, and I think your your business partner's name is Travis, if I remember right, and you said, what do, what do we need to do to have a good podcast? And you, you guys probably, without even knowing it, put together a checklist, just like I use in aviation and just like I use in my own life on expeditions, and put that together. I don't think you said you wanted to have a podcast. You said, what do we need to do? And if you follow that through in your daily life is what do I need to do to do this? What do I need to do to go there? What do I need to do to pay for this trip or buy that mountain bike to do this expedition? I think we're all going to figure it out. And one of the things I keep hearkening back to checklists, sorry, but I'm an airline pilot and I think they're critically important. But you know when you wake up in the morning, Kurt, what's going to constitute a good day for you. So you know what makes a good day. So when you go to bed at night, and you and you say to your wife, you go, you know what, honey, that was a really good day. I got this done. I recorded a podcast interview. I got a workout in. I worked on some products at the store. I spent some time with the kids. We had a healthy meal and a nice glass of red wine. That to me is a good day. Well, if you know what is a good day is, when you wake up the next morning, why don't you write down what a good day is going to be? Why don't you just jot down on a piece of paper beside the bed what is going to make a good day? Or if you don't want to write it down, 
to simply think about what constitutes a good day, a checklist, because it's not top secret to you what a good day is. Instead of just waking up and dealing with it as it comes at you, set it up in a structured way that you say, okay, I'm going to have a healthy breakfast. I'm going to go for a run, go to the gym, whatever it may be. I'm going to work for two hours on the podcast. I'm going to write a blog and I'm going to spend uh, time with the kids, sit down with my wife and watch a movie and have a glass of wine. And and you can you can far better achieve these things if you've had a plan in the morning to 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 have a good day because you know what the secret is to a good day. And if you continue to do that in your life, you're eventually going to be feeling successful and fulfilled and it'll help you achieve goals in the long run. So I think it's really important to wake up instead of just letting life happen, dictate uh, how you want your day to be. That's beautiful, man. I, the listeners know that I just recently moved to Gunnison. We're still unpacking boxes. And so I yep. just reached in a box a, a couple days ago, pulled out an old notebook, and I keep notebooks so I can track everything I have to do and everything that I've done and, and that sort of thing. But on the front of this notebook, in big block letters with a magic marker, I had written intentional. Wow. And that's yeah, what you're talking live, about. Yeah, you got to live, live life, life that yes, way. With intent. Live it with intent. Don't just wake up and when your alarm goes off and deal with it. Try and, and steer it. Take control of it. And, and you decide how your day wants to go. Because like I say, every one of us knows what a good day is for us personally. And we also know what a crappy day is as well. You know sometimes that you're going to go to bed and you go, you know what? I spun my wheels. I wasted time on this. I didn't get this done. I decided to defer that. Now I'm paying for it. I'm going to have to be up late tomorrow night. But if you had sat down that morning and sort of laid it out, either by writing it in that notebook of yours, your intentional notebook, putting it on a recipe card beside your bed, on a yellow sticky note, or just sitting there and thinking about it while you're having your coffee before you start your day, it's amazing how much better your days progress. I mean, back to aviation, we do that in aviation. When we check in with my crew, I've got Myself and the flight attendants and my first officer, also known as a co-pilot, and we have a formal scripted briefing that we have to go through every day. So we talk about how the day is going to go. We talk about the weather conditions. We talk about any mechanical issues with the airplane. We review an emergency as a crew so everybody knows exactly what everybody's going to do. And then once we get into that airplane, our day is scripted from, from the 54-item checklist that I have to do before I even start an engine on that bird to all the different checklists I have to do before I can roll down the runway for takeoff. Nothing is left to chance and nothing is just sort of sort of just left to the whims of the weather or the whims of the day. So that by the time I get back, that mission of flying that airplane and no matter how many legs I do that day has been accomplished safely and successfully. And we can do that with life as well by by using checklists, by being intentional about how we want to conduct our day. So if you wake up and you say, I'm going to spend an hour today on fitness somehow squeeze that into your day because you wrote it down or you you noted it in your head, for example. Really important, in my opinion. No, oh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's beautiful advice. I'm glad that you took the, the time to share that. I think that's what makes even simple adventures possible because you won't get these adventures in if you don't plan for them and make them happen, you know. T- totally. And, and, and the type of adventures we're talking about, one, one thing that's critical about this, Kurt, is that you have to stay fit and healthy. Because no matter what you write down on that recipe card in the morning or on that intentional notebook, if you're not fit, you're not going to be able to quickly grab your backpack, some trekking poles, your trail shoes, and go bag a 14er or a 13er down in Colorado. You have to be fit. I mean, it's so important that you maintain your fitness and your health. I mean, I'm, I'm 48 years old, but I've been training my entire life, and I, that is a key part of my life every day is fitness. Whether it's at the gym, whether it's running, whether it's riding my bike, whether it's eating healthy, it's critical. If you don't have that, you can't enjoy the outdoors as much. I mean, in, in the sense that we're talking about, we're uh, uh, sort of this high adventure stuff. Yeah. You know, I have to share one more sideline to the anecdote that I shared earlier because it's so applicable to what you're saying. And while I'm doing that, think of an experience that you'd like to share that it could either be funny, moving, um, just something that, that really imprinted itself on your memory, because I'd like for you to answer that question. But mm-hmm. when we headed up Navajo that, that mid-afternoon, which turned into a late evening, which turned into late night, we almost made it to the summit. And as we were climbing a coular, the snow started hitting, and we knew we were in trouble, so we turned around. But here's the, the, the kicker. 
It just so happens that a commercial airline crashed on Navajo in that Kular years before. And it was at the site of the airplane crash where we're looking at twisted propellers and seat springs that we turned around and said, we screwed up. We didn't pay attention to our checklist. Yeah. That's and a pretty it, somber reminder. Yeah, it it really was. And I have to say, you know, just tying together the, the checklists that you use as a pilot. It's someone, you know, that was flying that plane many, many years ago. Uh, they failed to take everything into account. And uh, it was really, really tragic. And we failed to take everything into account. And luckily, we got, a, got away with it. But I love what you're saying about being intentional. Make your checklist. Make sure that you have your plan B. And do it in a manner so that, you know, you can come back to, to enjoy adventure again another day. I, I love that. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. And always look behind you. One thing I recommend in the mountains is that when you're climbing a peak, we're always staring at the peak or the couloir or the ridge that we're going to go up or the next rock or go around that crevasse or head to that ice fall. We're always looking forward at our goals, but you need to know how to get back down. And uh, I remember that clearly in a very famous book, Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, which everybody sure. knows in our community. And he talked about always looking behind him so that in case the shit hit the fan, he knew how to get back down. And uh, I use that all the time. When I'm going up, I'm always looking behind me because things look totally different on a mountain when you're coming down. I mean, completely different. And uh, that is critical because going up is halfway. I mean, when I got to the top of Everest, that was halfway. I was, it's the only mountain I can honestly say that I've ever been on the summit where I, wa I wasn't emotional. I didn't feel like I'd achieved anything. And it took me days until I was past hazard on the way down, like back on flats at 17,000 feet, 18,000 feet at the bottom of the mountain where I realized I'd made it. I didn't celebrate in my own head until every objective hazard was passed. And uh, that, that's critical that these climbs are not about getting to the top. You have to come back down mm. and come back down alive. And I did have a small failure with it when I lost my fingers with uh, frostbite. But at the same time, a successful climb is getting back either to the car or to your tent or to base camp. Yeah. Well, did you come up with that one experience, that one story that you'd like to close this out with? So you want sort of an amusing anecdote. So... This is uh, this is not tied in directly to climbing Navajo and getting uh, getting into trouble and nearly getting the chop. But when I was talking about Iraq, I was in this area right along the Iranian-Iraqi uh, border that was famous for this kidnapping of these Americans in 2009. And um, I had started the climb in a very heavy wind and rain that quickly turned to wet snow and mud. And for several hours, I proceeded through this uh, wind and rain and mud. And I got to this um, meadow at the base of the mountain, right beside a creek. And I set up my tent in the, in the wet snow and the mud. I was inside the tent wet. And I was very nervous about the fact that there was, uh, the Iranian border was in sight of my tent. And that any soldiers, Iranian soldiers, could see me easily sneak down and grab me. Because there was no tribesmen up there. There was no um, villages occupied at that time because it was wintertime. So the high country was abandoned. And I, and I was very, very worried about that, that I was going to get nabbed by the Iranians, kidnapped. And I think Janet would have been really upset. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I went to bed that night, very concerned about it. The wind was blowing, so it was very tough to hear outside the tent. It was a little bit like being in bear country where, you're, you know, every, everything outside sounds like a bear but um, a grizzly or a polar bear especially, those are the worst. But, right. um, but uh, I um, woke up in the morning and I heard a cough outside my tent, a human cough right outside the zipper. So I, um, I opened the fly, the, sorry, the interior of the tent, and I still had to open the fly. But when I opened the interior of the tent, I could see underneath the, the fly because it obviously doesn't extend to the ground. And I could see khaki pants, uh, two shoes and a rifle butt on the ground. So oh. somebody holding a, holding a gun with the rifle butt on the ground. And I just said to myself, this is it. I've been kidnapped. Janet's not going to like this. I've, uh, I've, uh, really done it this time. She's not going to be happy. So I took a deep breath. My heart was racing, it was literally in my throat, my heart. And I unzipped the tent and there was standing, there was a Kurdish hunter tribesman who was, um, standing there with this primitive old 12 gauge shotgun is what it looked like <laughs> and uh, i spoke a tiny bit of kurdish and he spoke zero english but 
through a combination of uh, sign language and me offering him tea and us exchanging some snacks together, we squatted in the snow, had this conversation, and by him sort of uh, uh, acting out over his head the horns of an ibex, he told me that he was hunting ibex and he was not an Iranian, uh, <laughs> an, an Iranian coming to kidnap me. But I really—that's one of a you know a very special comical moment in the outdoors where I convinced myself I was about to be kidnapped. I woke up to the. A, a guy standing with a rifle or a shotgun outside my tent. It turned out to be this incredible, uh, pleasant story that I'll never forget. So oh, that's great. That's my that's my amusing anecdote. Yeah, that's wonderful. You know, the the unlikely really is unlikely. Not that it never happens, but <laughs> sometimes we forget that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that was uh, that was a special moment. And sitting there with that guy squatting in the snow, I'll never forget these two people from completely separate worlds. And I often wonder what's happened to that guy since the rise of ISIS in that region. And mm. uh, I certainly hope he's okay. So Yeah, yeah. Well, Laval, we have to tell everyone how they can learn more. Your website is lavalsaintgermain.com, and that's L-A-V-A-L-S-T-G-E-R-M-A-I-N.com. So lavalsaintgermain.com. That's a, probably the best way to get more information. What else uh, or what other places should people look Sure. Twitter, uh, at Laval St. Germain, all one word. So L-A-V-A-L-S-T-G-E-R-M-A-I-N. Instagram, I'm pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. You can search me on uh, Facebook as well. But uh, yeah, reach out to me on uh, Twitter, on Instagram. I've got a contact me forum on my website. If um, somebody wants to chat, I'm always open to talking about it with uh, fellow adventurers if they have any questions. And um, yeah, I'm, uh, I-, I love sharing my story. So feel free to reach out. Well, that's fantastic. Do you have any books in the works? I, I told my wife, she keeps asking me, I said, as soon as I do something interesting, I'll write a book, and she just rolls her <laughs> eyes. So I, don't, I think someday I'll write a book. If I, I, if I really find what I've done is interesting, I will. But right now, I'm, uh, I'm just enjoying uh, living life outdoors, a life of adventure, doing stuff with, uh, with my kids. And uh, maybe someday when I'm old and decrepit, I'll write a book. We'll see. Well, of all, I have to say, thank you especially for being real with us about the the hardships and the tragedies that you've experienced in your life and how, you know, reaching out and going on these challenging adventures has helped to shape you and get you through some really, really difficult times. I think that those words will uh, certainly act as seeds that will find some purchase in someone's soul. And you're, you helped someone today. Well, that's nice to hear, Kurt, and uh, because of your podcast, we were able to do that with this conversation. So thanks very much. I enjoy your podcast. I listen to it all the time, and I'm looking forward to uh, more of them. Well, thank you very much. And for all of our listeners out there, hey, I always say it before the next show, make sure that you do get out there and have some fun. I'm going to throw in here, plan it, right? Put it on paper. Yeah. Be intentional. Make it happen, just like Laval said. Thanks, Laval. Write it down. Thanks very much, Kurt. Coming up on Thursday, we've got Uriel Eisen and Maggie Burke talking about bikepacking the Ecuadorian Andes. Until then, get out and have some fun.